You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the first BMJ podcast for 2010. Happy New Year to you all. I'm Duncan Jarvis, the podcast producer. Next week, we'll be back to our usual schedule with some news, research, things like that. But for the first podcast for 2010, we thought we'd ease you in gently. Firstly, Rebecca Coombs will be finding out about some hopes for 2010. And we'll also be finding out about 20 mile an hour zones and how effective they've been at reducing injuries. That's to follow, but first of all, over to Rebecca. Hi, I'm Rebecca Coombs. I'm an associate editor at the BMJ. I'm here at the BMJ's annual Christmas party with lots of friends of the BMJ, ranging from senior academics down to student doctors. And I'm asking a selection of these people um, what they would like to see achieved in medicine over the next decade. Uh, I'm David Cahoon. I'm a pharmacologist from University College London. Futurology on the whole is not worth the paper it's written on because when you compare afterwards what actually happened with what people were forecasting, it's almost always wrong. So uh, such thing guesses are to be taken totally with a pinch of salt. It has been sort of distressing, I guess, that in the last decade or two decades, pharmacology seems to have run out of ideas. There have been few new good treatments, a lot of me-tours and a lot of uh, not terribly effective treatments. And I'm talking now about the regular drug industry, of course, not quackery. It would be nice if that changed. It would be nice if personalised genomic medicine got to a state where it was useful, which at the moment, except in a very few limited fields, it doesn't seem to be. The, the trouble is, if you take cystic fibrosis, uh, what, there's 1,500 different mutations. You can't have a treatment tailored for each of them, and per- perhaps it will turn out that you don't need to, but perhaps one will treat the phenotype sufficiently well, that, and the phenotypes, of course, are similar in, for, for all the different mutations. It won't be necessary, but really it's just guesswork at the moment. It is a mistake, I think, to suppose that one's pious hopes will actually come true. Uh, It's hard to see how the conventional approach to pharmacology, to drug development, is going to produce much more. I mean, it will. It's a very serendipitous process. It's almost random. Uh, But there's no doubt that the rate of discoveries has decreased drastically. And it's terribly sad that the reaction of the uh, big drug companies to that has by and large not been to scale down their operation accordingly, but to get more dishonest about concealing data and so on. And that's a great tragedy, and um, one has to hope that ways will be found of preventing that happening in the future, because it harms people. Hey, I'm Kinesh Patel, I'm a gastroenterology registrar at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital. Um, what would I like to see in the next 10 years? Well, from a public health point of view, I guess... Uh, from my perspective, what we see a lot of is alcohol-related problems, and the last 10 years have been superb in bringing smoke-free environments. I don't think anyone can really argue about not having to worry about going into a nightclub or a pub now and coming out at the very most shallow level, stinking of smoke, and um, having to wash their hair the next day, and, and all that's gone in a distant memory of the past. And I mean, I remember as when I was young, going into a cinema, this is only 15 years ago and people smoking and thinking how foul that was or 20 years going on a plane and people smoking at the back and sitting in the non-smoking session, the section and now I suppose you think well, that all seems prehistoric and I think with alcohol we probably have to go through the same things. I was in Tesco just before I came here and I saw a 
two litre bottle of white lightning which was 7.5% so about 15 units of alcohol in that for three pounds and that can't be right um, and that's exactly what we see all our alcoholics true alcoholics drinking I mean the middle class drinking is a second thing but I think minimum price really has to come in on that um, in terms of the NHS well I think some huge improvements have been made in the last 10 years but at the cost of a lot of loss of morale and loss, a lot of loss of loyalty which I think has gone um, and that's been the trade-off although that's very hard to measure whereas some of the improvements are very easy to measure. Over uh, the next 10 years I think we probably need to streamline the services more and make things a bit more accessible. The fact that our services are not dissimilar to that of BT and when you ring BT and the call centres in Glasgow or Liverpool they know exactly who you are and what your account is and when you, whether you paid or not if you go into a hospital in Liverpool or in Glasgow they've got no hope at all of knowing what the other one did and I think that's just crying out for change given the fact that every other company in the private sector has been able to do this for the last 20 years. But surely that's dependent on a national IT programme that seems to be suffering setback after setback. That is dependent on a national IT programme but I think if hospitals implement their own systems, essentially what patients really need is, I mean, it's not actually very complicated. What we deal with is text, numbers and pictures, and, and that's most of what we do. So you could summarise most patients' history in a file that's probably no more than a megabyte, which would fit on a USB stick. Now, it can't be beyond the wit of man to share that between hospitals. And I think, you know, particularly the text side of it, clinic letters, ECGs, they're all not particularly difficult to move around and certainly other organisations move huge amounts of data infinitely more quickly across the system and it, can't, it just can't be right that when a patient presents to accident emergency one has no record of their ECG ever being done for the last 30 years. So it's David Oliver, I'm consultant at the Royal Berkshire Hospital in Reading and Professor of Medicine for Older People at City University in London. My job is looking after older people, often older people with long-term conditions uh, and frailty and some disability. And what I'd like to see over the next 10 years is a recognition that they are the main users of health and social care. They're not a minority and the systems need to be designed around their needs because increasingly that will be people's job. And training of health professionals needs to reflect their needs as well. But we also need to have much better integration between primary care, secondary care and social care at the moment, they're still all working in silos, working to their own agendas. And a lot of the solutions to the system, especially with a credit crunch, are actually to get the right person in the right part of the system. And at the moment, we have, for instance, older people drifting into hospital whose problems could have been settled in the community. And we have very common conditions affecting older people that are not very well recognized and not very well managed. And we need to realize if we manage those people in those conditions well, we'll unlock the rest of the system. So I'd like to see services that are actually age-proof, fit for purpose and designed around the needs of the main users of the system. So. And, and any, any hopes and um, developments in, in, in treatment, for example, um, Alzheimer's? Well, I mean, at the moment there are 700,000 people affected by Alzheimer's and there's projected to be about 1.4 million within the next 25 years. So any advance in drug treatment or prevention would be great, but of course a lot of the treatment that people with Alzheimer's need is low grade, low key, it's not high tech, it's not sexy, it's support for carers, it's rehabilitation, it's respite and I'd like to see more investment in those type of services. But the other thing is we have very common conditions that affect older people for which there already exists an evidence base. For instance, one in two women will suffer an osteoporotic fracture in their lifetime 
but we know that people are not receiving quite cheap and very effective treatments at the moment. And the same goes for other common conditions, falls, urinary incontinence, stroke. We're just not delivering um, evidence-based treatments even when NICE is mandating it. So it's not all about high-tech, cutting-edge, breakthrough treatment. It's about actually delivering um, often cost-effective treatments for commonplace conditions. Hello, my name is Kate McCann. I'm a fourth-year medical student at University of East Anglia and for the next decade I'm hoping that we go back to the system of grants and not tuition fees for students and that junior doctors are better looked after. And have you got any hopes for those um, aspirations being fulfilled? Not a chance. <laughs> I don't think it's ever realistically going to happen. But it's a nice hope, nonetheless. Do you think things have got worse in the last decade? I think they have. I think, from, from my viewpoint of being a student, MMC and MTAS is a scary concept, and we don't know enough about it at the moment as students. Even a little bit more education throughout the five years of university would be a good start. So. What kind of effect do you think it's having on you and your peers? I think it's demoralising junior doctors. I know junior doctors who have left the profession a year into qualifying, and a few more who've said, don't do it, and that scares me that I've wasted all this time and I might quit. But I hope I don't. So what would be the one thing that you would, you would hope that could, could make the biggest difference to your, uh, to um, your life, your working life? That junior doctors are better looked after in general and not, you know, European Working Time Directive is seen as a good and a bad thing and as long as everybody embraces it, it has the potential to be a good thing. But I think junior doctors just need a little bit more support and, and so to finally a medical students when they're choosing their MTAS choices. I'm Ronan Gillon and I'm uh, Emeritus Professor of Medical Ethics at Imperial College London and I'm Chairman of the Institute of Medical Ethics and I used to be for 20 years Editor of the Journal of Medical Ethics. I suppose what I'd really like to see is the human face of medicine smiling again. Uh, I think that the science and the technology and indeed the administration, management and legal aspects of medicine are all getting very high coverage, very great development and I'm not against any of those things. I think they're wonderful. But in the process I do think that the human face of medicine, things like the bedside manner, things like smiling at patients, uh, encouraging everybody else to smile at patients um, is uh, well is of less importance shall we say than it used to be and I'd like to see that coming back well, what encouraging signs that it is with the communication skills now being taught at undergraduate level yes yes I think probably what it boils down to is an attitude right at the top of whatever branch of healthcare you're talking about that says what's happening in my area of control as it were and influence uh, in terms of making it good for patients, making it good for the people we're dealing with generally, um, making it a more human experience. And if you want to tell us about your hopes or wishes or ideas for what's going to happen in the next decade, there's a discussion on Doctor Doc. That's the BMJ's networking site for doctors. Now I'm joined by Chris Grundy. Chris is a lecturer at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and he's been looking at 20 mile an hour zones in London. Chris, for a start, for people who aren't in the UK, what are these 20 mile an hour zones? How do they work? 
Um, 20 mile an hour zones are areas where we use physical measures to slow traffic down to 20 miles an hour. Um, engineering measures such as speed humps, chicanes or other measures um, which are self-enforcing and it's very difficult or very uncomfortable to travel at speeds of over 20 miles an hour. So you were looking at accidents and injuries in these in these zones and you're looking at a police database that holds all this kind of information. How much data is actually in there? Um, any collision that involves an injury and is reported to the police gets recorded on a form called Stats 19. And that database contains information on the collision itself, so the location where that collision occurred, um, the road conditions, if there are any factors um, about that particular collision. And then information on the vehicles involved and also on the people involved. So if there are any casualties, the severity of the casualty, where that casualty lives, um, the age, the sex. Um, and in London, we're very lucky that it also contains some information on um, ethnicity. So what information did you pull out of this database to, to do your study? Um, well, we looked over 20 years of data from 1986 to 1996. Um, and during that time period, there were over 900,000 casualties in the greater London area, which is where we were looking. And we linked each of these casualties to the road that they occurred on. Um, and we knew how severe the casualty was and the age and the sex of the casualty. So you took this data and you, you um, mapped it onto these 20 mile an hour zones. What was it you found? Um, what we found was overall a 42% reduction in casualties um, in areas of 20 mile an hour zones um, compared to what's going on in background areas. Um, and we found it was higher for more serious injuries. So for those people who were killed or seriously injured, it was 46% reduction. Um, and for vulnerable groups such as children, we found higher um, decreases still with a 49% reduction in, in all injuries. OK, so why isn't the whole of London made into a 21 hour zone then? Um, partly because historically... 20-mile-an-hour zones have been used where there have either been high numbers of collisions or where there have been a possibility of having high number of casualties. So around schools, for instance, where they're put in to protect um, children going to that particular school. Um, and this comes about because they are very expensive to put in. So it would just be impossible to make all of London a 20-mile-an-hour zone. Um, it would also be fairly unpopular in terms of um, people, although they approve of 20 mile an hour zones and do like them, um, I think most people dislike some of the engineering measures that are used. And that's possibly bad news be well, for some of the people who dislike them because the government's actually come up with some new legislation to, to help councils create these 20 mile an hour zones. Yeah, it, it changed um, a few years back. They, it used to be that you had to show that there were casualties and collisions happening in the area. And they then said that they could be put in to prevent casualties. Um, and this was specifically aimed around schools. Um, and all around the UK, you know, 20 mile an hour zones are now being used a lot more to prevent co future collisions rather than necessarily um, in areas where we've currently got high levels of collisions. Um, but today the government's released new 
legislation, which says that it's encouraging local authorities um, and making it possible for local authorities to use 20 mile an hour speed limits um, in their areas, um, especially on residential roads, but also around schools, um, shopping areas where you've got lots of pedestrians and cyclists um, with the aim of encouraging um, making it a lot easier for um, councils to make large, much larger areas which are financially viable um, um, to be become 20 miles an hour. You were looking at London specifically and London's possibly slightly unique in the number of cyclists and number of pedestrians. I mean, did you take this into account um, when you were doing your research? How can you extrapolate this also beyond, you know, beyond London? Um, we purely looked at London, but our results do um, match findings from other studies, um, both in the UK and in other countries, um, where they found similar reductions. Um, so it doesn't tend to be, it, it doesn't suggest that this is just a London-wide. Um, we suggest that our results would be, um, accept, would be, you could extrapolate to other major urban areas. Um, there would be probably some difference in more rural areas, but most major urban areas would find a similar reduction if you're redu- depending on how much you're reducing speeds. And you can read Chris's paper online on bmj.com, and it's also in this week's print edition. As I said, next week we'll be back to the usual schedule, so join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.